This is Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, featuring distinctly qualified global changemakers dedicated to creating a healthier planet. One where our unique gifts are lived, expressed, and celebrated. I'm your host, Julian Guderlai. All right, so here we are for an episode on systems change. And I'm here with Gregory Wendt and uh, a few people in the room about, yeah, from TTI, top tier impact. And I am really excited to have this dialogue with you, Gregory, and everybody who wants to join about systems change and kind of where we're at in the whole, you know, trajectory of it and what are the underlying parameters, maybe the goals of system change and the rules of current systems. Like let's get let's get deep in. Gregory, where where does that topic start for you? Like what's what's in your mind that you want to contribute at the beginning here? Um I'm thinking about the situation that we're all in. You know, we're all in our various homes or offices, right? In a context of being on a planet, right? And each of us are in our various cultures and our modalities and our relationships and our technologies and our relationship to technology. And then if we look at the the legacy systems that we're working with, the tools, points of view, the, inst the institutions, the way we interact and the way we govern ourselves. And then look at taking a little more of expanded view of looking at life on earth and what's going on on the planet and the biosphere and the challenges that we know many of us on the planet are concerned about. And then how many people are not concerned about and the difference between them and the gaps between the different perspectives on the planet and also the gaps between what was set up that we're inheriting and what is necessary to move forward for, for effective success for the human race and for all life, right? Because we know we're intimately tied to all life. I think a lot of us are very much committed to that. So the question that I think feels like we have to incorporate all of that and anything else that you can imagine that I didn't mention that's part of this, the situation in terms of what do we do for what is, how do we go forward together and how do we address the challenges and make, make decisions in cooperation to actually bring about a more harmonious and more successful outcomes for what it means to be human and what it means to be um, together on the planet for success for future generations. I, I think that's really the nugget for me. Uh, and I think that's why a lot of us are here. So the question is, what's next? You know, I don't, I don't know, but that's the situation for the most broad and succinct situation that we're in on the planet in terms of systems change, right? And system, the system we're in. Mm. Yeah, I'll, I'll throw in one one more piece, and I'll I'll kind of double tap on one of the things you said, Gregory, which is we've inherited systems, right? Like we're all born into a world that um, that has current systems in place, and some of them are completely outdated and are not really working for you know the modern world as we know it, and so or for the modern world that's changing, right? Because we're in an exponential environment with you know uh, technology becoming um, ever more intelligent with you know our 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 borders kind of, you know, remaining the same as they have been for a long time, but at the same time, people traveling globally more than they have ever before, probably. And so the world and the way humans move in the world is changing. We know there's, you know, lots of pollution in the environment. The, our relationship with the environment has, has definitely, um, there's a big mirror that we need to clean, right? And um, I think because of that, we have to kind of acknowledge that a lot of the old systems that we've inherited, they're, they're not really serving us on the path forward, right? Um, and then, you know, on top of that, I think we're also in an age now where maybe this is because of how we're increasingly more connected through social media, we're increasingly more connected through technology, cell phones, all, all of that in our daily capacity and of, you know, at least three, four billion people at the planet. Um, we are increasingly stepping into a participatory world. And so I believe that in, you know, if you look back into the past, that for most people, the the word systems change or systems at large was something that would never touch their own life because there's kings and queens and governments and that's what they do and that's not what we do. But at the at the you know kind of where the um, 
where it all touches the ground, I guess, is, is that humans actually create this change. And so I, I think it's really a call to participation. And that's how I'd love to start this conversation is it's a mm-hmm. call to participation because really the systems we live in are shaped by us and they're accepted and surrendered by, by us and we, we can change them. Right. And I think we, we kind of need to, maybe the closest to it, um, so far in the world is the, the so-called SDGs, right? The sustainable development goals. So they're goals of a system. Personally, if I read most of the fine print to them, I'm, I'm not a big fan, but you know, I, I think it's, it's a good start. Um, it's a framework. Um, that's a starting point based on the mindset that the people who created those uh, goals, how they felt, how to address the situation, right? And I feel um, mindset is also very, very key. And what is the intent? What is the what is the possibility that we are holding as a collective for what is possible? Because um, as we all know, you know, science there's science and technology. And I just heard Bruce Lipton say um, there is science, but then technology builds things, and science does not. And science is a mental model and technology is where things are um, experimented with, right? But there's no, there's some distinction there, but I don't know how relevant that is. The question I'm looking at is how do we evolve the science of what is going on and how do we, how do we um, understand our own cognitive limitations? Because many of us, when we study human psychology and our own our own process as human development, we're developing patterns and techniques and strategies for survival in our early lives that continue to perpetuate and sometimes affect negatively our future lives. But and then applying that on a collective level, we have to look and challenge the mental models that we have about what is important, what is the goal. Who am I? Who are we? What's going on here? And is what I'm thinking actually the obstacle to progress here or what I'm attached to and my lack of emotional sophistication, I or our lack of emotional sophistication to embrace change and let go of something that was comfortable, namely legacy industries that are actually obsolete but predominant because of the wealth and power from those who run those industries is actually harp hampering human progress because we all know there are technologies that are better that we have available to replace the legacy technologies that we use every day. So there's some of that. It's all a mental process. And someone said, I think it was uh, that he thought that the problems were environment, climate, society, but it's actually greed, selfishness, and incapacity for evolving the way we think that is really the social problem here, that we don't know how to cooperate. It's, Or someone else said, we don't have an environmental or an economic or a societal or political crisis. We have a systemic crisis, and the system is based on our mental model. So those are the ideas that what you said just prompted the recognitions, I don't have any answers there, but I think it's important to outline the questions before us and what is the, actually the right kind of questions for us to be addressing, right? Yeah. Is it Coke, Coke or Pepsi or should we bring, be drinking sugar drinks at all, you know? So this that's, is the that's kind a good of metaphor, you know, yeah. uh, conundrum we're in. We're, off, we're, you know, we're in a collective where the choice is offered to humanity from the people that are in elite power and authority, you know, they're an authority. They're not necessarily powerful. The choices that are available uh, are limited because of the mindset of those who are making some of those decisions. And I think that's where I think all of us are are harnessing our collective agency and our individual role that we can play a change that the in in earlier generations the elites played. Or I'm not saying we're not elites, but I'm saying that the people that are in positions of authority we all actually have a voice in that. And also all of us have a responsibility to address these cognitive challenges in our own personal lives, but our collective lives. So those are the things that I just would love to talk more about and hear everyone's thoughts. And, and, you know, that's a starting point for us. 
Yeah, big time. I think it's really about the questions we ask at this time and also like continuously asking those questions, right? Because it's no one will have all the answers and systems and the way the world is run and the way, you know, the way any day happens really. Um, it's it's not fully to be controlled by anyone. And I think this is kind of like the the irony of life is that we humans in our mind and our ego, we, we love to, you know, kind of control as much as we can, but at the same point, we, we really can't. And so questioning... Uh, the paradigm we're in questioning kind of the mindset that we're in, I think is, is like the biggest gateway to change. Right. I think um, I was made aware recently of uh, Danella Meadows book leverage points. Um, and so, mm. you know, it's, it's fascinating that, you know, most of those leverage points to change systems that she mentions are within existing systems. And then there's one specific one and that's like the top one it's mindset and the paradigm out of which a system is born. And so all of its goals, power structure, rules, culture arise from those mindsets and paradigms. And you just said it, like whether to drink Coke or Pepsi. Well, the real question is, do I want to drink sugar drinks at all? At all right? And so that's, I think that's very similar in this world we're, we're in. Like our economy is a winner takes it all kind of economy. And I don't personally know exactly how to change all of that right away, but I think just noticing that and realizing um, I saw a post yesterday, someone on LinkedIn, uh, someone shared that the Saudi Arabian company Aramco reported like $32 billion of profit in this last quarter, which is more than Google and Meta and NVIDIA and Amazon and Tesla combined, right? So it's just very interesting that the, the, the winner takes it all is the paradigm that most of our systems are economically measured by, right? Everything is measured by GDP and what are you able to 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 create as a you know, economic output? But I don't think that that actually relates to the well-being of the environment or the well-being of humans. Um, and when I say environment, I mean all of the living beings, right? And so the the well-being factor, I think there's just very few countries that measure it at all. Um, increasingly, has become more and more of a topic in the last decade or or two. But it still hasn't turned into the focal point of how we arrange our society. And I think for me. Um, why not, right? Like this seems to be the most important question in my head, at least, is how do we create a world where, you know, like Buckminster Fuller said, like all participants can thrive, um, a world that works for all. Now that's that's a very big goal, a very big, very different paradigm and mindset. Well, that's a paradigm right there. So yeah. that's a paradigm from us to go from the predominant cultural paradigm that all of us are operating from, regardless of our country. There's a co global cultural paradigm more money is better. Having more influence over others is better. Uh, some of those kinds of things of um, uh, all those challenges that I think have, all of us have direct experience in, so I don't need to list them. But shifting out of that paradigm that has been driving us to something that is actually more holistic, uh, we are in a collective paradigm shift. There's a whole system shift well underway. And I wrote, I just watched another um, there's been a lot on my mind around this kind of collective. We're in a we're in a phase transition, not unlike the the Renaissance or the Industrial Revolution, but it's happening as we are all alive, and it's the paradigm shift from you know what was before sustainable development, because the idea of sustainable development was groundbreaking that we should actually think of future generations on what we do now which was completely opposite from the industrial model of just, um, which we don't need to explain what that industrial model is. I think we all have a sense, but the evolution from sust sustainable development to what's next, because we know that, as you were saying, the SDGs, we, there's, some there's some challenges we have with the way that they're framed and the way that they have not been effective. Uh, we have we have not been collectively effective in achieving those goals in the way that we thought when we, we designed them. So there's a new shift underway, living systems, cooperative, uh, regenerative. Uh, there's some great work here in TTI with, you know, some great thinking. And I remember meeting, reading the uh, uh, from handprint, footprint to handprint, um, from sustainable to regenerative, and that was a really well done. That Matthias um, Boisena, I don't know how to pronounce the name. I don't. I speak Japanese and Spanish, but not French very well. Um, so there's some of that going on that we are really fundamentally in a in a mindset shift. And Otto Scharmer and his work, and Carol Sanford, 
you know, that the state of mind of the intervener determines the intervention and the paradigm and where we're coming from and what the goals are and what we're doing collectively also inform the game, right? So we have to change the rules of the game. And this started landing in me after 12 years of being in the, in the, in the Wall Street world of you know, finance and the conventional finance and recognizing that we need to do responsible investing, but then getting into the community of responsible investing and social venture network and going to the various conferences 20 years ago, I started seeing that that was still within the game of capital markets and business as the paradigm. We need to go to a deeper paradigm and look at what is it that we can do to shift out of the way that we do business on the planet. I mean, does business, does, does a forest run itself based on market dynamics? Does the forest run itself based on pricing theory? No, then why are we looking at how do we help forests with market dynamics where the forest is not designed based on those principles? So we need to look at things. We're not, we don't have, we have a business relationship with nature rather than a, a peer to peer reverence is what. Um, so, anyway, I can go on, but those are the ideas of shifting our core paradigm as the beginning and recognizing and, and, and becoming self-aware of our paradigm and to educate ourselves from the other paradigms into what is actually effective for future generations is I think a responsibility for us collectively, which is why I think you and I, Julian felt called to do this. It was our instinct to actually say, we need to have this kind of conversation in TTI and the broader community. But I think TTI is the lever to steer that. But if we're not coherent internally in TTI, how can we externally make some those kind of grand changes that are necessary? So anyway, yeah. that's, I, I can go on. I, I, I just, you got me on a roll. And, ple and please do. I, I like that you're on a roll, but uh, you know, I'm just picking up a, a question that uh, Jörg just sent me here in the chat. And that is like, how do we turn questions then into actions? Right. And I think that's exactly where you just went, Gregory, which is at those intersection points where groups of people, entire cohorts of people uh, start asking similar questions or start perceiving and understanding from a different kind of paradigm and realize, well, you know, the, the world, the way it's currently run, it works the way it does, fair enough, but it is creating a continuation of, you know, poverty, continuation of inequality, continuation of pollution. And so in one way or other, uh, it seems to not solve those problems, but to a degree, even just heighten them, right? Because we, we have this like, um, very clear, very visible wealth transfer more and more uh, into the kind of 0.1%, I guess, not even the 1%, which is like the financial elite on this planet. And, you know, if we zoom out all the way out of our individual perspective, maybe that's not even wrong, but it, it clearly isn't really working in a way that it's working for the environment and for all people. And so I think from that perspective, it's 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 pretty flawed, right? And so more and more people are seeing this now more than ever. I think 40, 50 years ago, it was impossible to fully see that as a, an average person. Um, hundreds of years ago, it was probably very unlikely that you would ever um, you know, revolt against your king uh, unless, and that's how all revolutions happened, um, people come together and they form groups of interest. And so when we are in cohorts like Top Tier Impact or you know, other cohorts like it, where hundreds of people gather to, you know, um, make meaningful business connections to 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 learn together to make kind of you know sustainable or regenerative steps forward. I think it's exactly those groups of people that that change the 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 way things are done in the world. And so in those groups, we need to ask those questions, and that then turns into action. Well, I know. I mean, I'm thinking about the Club of Rome or um, Milken Institute. That you know, TTI members. We all had a great meetup at uh, at uh, the Milken Global Conference, which I call the Davos of the West. You know, in Beverly Hills here. But I, I've been involved in, in in connected with a number of think tanks, and when I learned that in the economic sphere, at least in this kind of um, the mental model that we hold for the way the economy works, you know, 40, 50 years ago, that mental model of neoliberal thinking, which I'm not going to say is good or bad. Um, I do have very strong opinions about it, but I'm going to say regardless, that was constructed by think tanks coming together strategically 
to then working with policymakers to say, oh, well, since that professor or that that smart guy that wrote that book said that thing, well, we can then say that that legitimizes this piece of legislation that puts into the regulatory framework some, um, I don't know if we can use expletives here, um, but, uh, you know, some some bullshit <laughs> that then became part of law, right? So what I'm feeling is we have an evolutionary capacity because many of us are already our think tanks alone. You know, my nonprofit's called Green Economy Think Tank, and there's a number of us that I deeply respect, including what you're doing with the podcast is not unlike a think tank, Julian. And I think all of us have that passion for thinking better, which is why I think we're aligned. Yet, we also have the actors and the doers and the financiers. We're a whole we're a whole system of ideas into action to address the question. We are the ones that can actually hold the answer and create better answers to the very question that was posed about what do we do with getting these ideas into action? Well, we are the ones responsible to do so in the manner that you just said. And then I feel that then they're just putting some intention. The question is, how do we put intention toward thinking better as a collective? And then how do we put some ideas into action better? And what are the, we, what are the mental models behind the various enterprises? That would be one thing to look at is, each of us that have family offices, investment firms, and or startups um, in TTI can look at, well, let's look a little deeper. What's the mental model? So that if we're about to make an investment or ask for an investment, we might be able to say, well, our mental model and the paradigm that we're operating from is X. So if you align with that, you should be investing here. Because there are some startups that are calling themselves helping the world that aren't necessarily doing so because they're in an obsolete mental model, right? So I think that's one of the challenges of greenwashing as well, um, that we can address here in TTI by making those things more transparent. And for those that are not operating on the mental model that is actually beneficial to the future, we can actually in TTI cultivate better ways to support those entrepreneurs and companies to actually shift to be truly more in alignment. And it's not about groupthink, it's a collective. But then we all know we can move in a direction of what really what is our collective goal and align with that in a set of principles, not rules. Systems change involves uh, embracing the chaos with different principles and uh, a set of principles. And that's that that allows us to also be nimble in each of our particular cities and contexts. And there's I'm sure there's there's tons of work that Danella Meadows in systems change and the work that's been done at the you know the, all these think tanks that I've mentioned, we all have that. I mean, I think a lot of people in TTI can say this a lot better than I can, and actually have actual reports and analysis that would actually demonstrate what, what I'm talking about. But then let's bring this forth as a collective, and then use this as a repository, a, a library of sorts of how we can actually operate together, and then create a laboratory of actually living examples that can co-learn and then consult. So. Uh, and and I think we should do this in TTI and our collective, but I'm also working with this inside of my, the group of people I'm working with and projects that I'm involved with. So I'm actually suggesting something that I'm actually working on doing myself. So uh, it's better to to take my own advice first, but I'm trying to give it as much as I can here. Yeah, but you're striking such a beautiful and such a like, you know, right, right on kind of uh, thread there, which is, you know, these 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 ways of um, operating they only change when we actually do it and when we actually come together and then we come together in those interest groups right and these interest groups can be bioregional they can be in the, like local communities or they can be cross across countries or continents in in global kind of think tanks or podcasts or however we do this in in the modern world like the the important point is for people to come together i think um if you you know um if if you look at it the some of the fundamental work for systems change for for systems change also that goes along this einstein quote that i think is you know quoted all over the internet that you know you cannot solve problems on the same level of consciousness that they were created in um the fundamental thinking i think has been done by people like otto scharner or donella meadows and many others and we are in a generation now or in a you know in a in a part of this world in 2023 where I think it's all becoming extremely obvious, very visible, right? And we already mentioned that. And so because of that, now it's time to kind of move from 
the, the fu fundamental thinking, like understanding the paradigm we're in, understanding that that paradigm in itself will very likely only lead to, you know, more of the same, uh, to say the least, possibly even like destruction in of ecosystems. And, you know, we're seeing it with, yeah, everywhere in the world, really. Um, so that wherever we, we take it forward, we, we need different paradigms, right? We need, we need to, to come together on a different level of consciousness to solve these problems. And I think it has a lot to do with how we meet and gather as people as well. So globalization, you know, um, has, has brought a lot of progress, but it has also brought a lot of new challenges. And um, it has also kind of made a lot of people into consumers of reality rather than, you know, participants of reality. And I think what we're lacking is this, this, this kind of going back to basics that the natural world that we are a part of, we're not excluded from it, the natural world that we are a part of has specific kind of hierarchies and structures in it. Like, you know, that's why I mentioned the word bioregional. And I, I remember that's how we first really kind of started to nerd out, uh, Gregory, that, you know, it, it's, it's one of those hot new buzzwords in a certain way, because change makes most sense in a bioregional context, at least kind of through the filter of, of which I see the world, because when you live in the same bioregion, when, when you're living in the same kind of ecosystem, similar topics will be topics that are important to you as an individual or to you as a group or to you as a collective, right? And in a different bioregion, like let's just say, I don't know, the um, rainforest of the Pacific Northwest compared to the desert of Abu Dhabi, right? Like those are very, very different regions on the planet. They don't need the same answers. They actually have different problems as well, right? There's no salmon as far as I know in Abu Dhabi. And, you know, it's, it's very important to address those locally specific topics because the problems that exist, I'll, I'll take one out of the Pacific Northwest because it's, you know, we've lived the last 11 years and it's, you know, it's very unfortunate, but the salmon have been the lifeblood of all of human civilization up there since humans have lived up there, specifically for all of the indigenous cultures in, in the Pacific Northwest of all of the different tribes and nation states. The salmon is like a, the holy grail, right? They're, they're, they're literally the lifeblood that nurtures humans, eagles, bears, orcas, you know, you name it. And in the last few years, the local salmon population is barely making it up the rivers anymore, mostly because of two main reasons. Um, I've, I've had this amazing uh, documentary film team on my podcast, Green Planet, Blue Planet recently. They, you know, they really um, did excellent work at showcasing this. And the two reasons are, um, one, dams that basically block the rivers from fish swimming upstream. Um, th that's a very, you know, simple thing to change actually, because we just have to open specific dams again in order to aid the natural systems to continue on the way that they're providing for life. And second, and this one, this one is almost, it's almost more ludicrous. Like it's, you know, you can definitely say that with bullshit. It's, it's, uh, it's absolute bullshit. There's Atlantic salmon fish farmeries in the Pacific waters that are placed there by a, you know, globalized economic interest so that. You know, I'm not, I'm not here to pick on Abu Dhabi, but that's so that you can eat salmon in the desert, right? Well, and the irony of that is ridiculous, yeah. It, the yeah. irony of that is ridiculous, but that, that Atlantic salmon then has lice that actually attacks the Pacific salmon and actually threatens their livelihood. And so those two problems combined lead to the decline in salmon, lead to, you know, the first, we were in the first two or three years ever that salmon are likely not going to make it into a full life cycle, which then threatens bears and eagles and orcas and, you know, ultimately also as humans because the waters are polluted. And so that's where I would say globalization is, you know, an, a problem from the perspective that, you know, we, we love the convenience of eating Atlantic salmon everywhere we go, but we, we, we're, we're, you know, um, going about it like everything is just a mathematical equation of, of taking and giving and putting some ingredients in. But really it's a highly... Um, a live balance, right, of each bioregion. Good place to start to answer. Um, I'll try to address your questions, Jorg, in a moment, but I wanted to, the, the discussion that you said, uh, Sophia, in your question in the chat, um, let me read it for you. Uh, can you give an example of a paradigm shift in history from ex from or from experience working with think tanks? So, um, I mean, I, I used to live in a meditation center 
working in a vegetarian restaurant in the 80s when I went to UCLA studying biochemistry and math, computer science, economics, financial markets, and the system, right? That was an early, early conversation where then in the 90s, a group called Natural Products Expo. So the idea of having natural food was, was enough, right? And then the idea of organic came in, right? And then organic was, well, if we don't put pesticides on it, then that's going to be in chemicals. But then the question of, well, what is the what do the plants and animals grow in? What's the what's the system around them? What is the context of the soil? What is the context of um, the quality of life of the animals and plants that we eat? or use for medicine or what or, or the pollinators you know how how important is the ecosystem around uh the plants we grow well then that also applies in the salmon what about the the life of, of other creatures and the context of where we're raising these these salmon or where we're harvesting these things oh well then the continued expansion of looking at the the system and the context of where food was raised to then um uh you might say that the collective of the businesses that were trying to model uh beneficial environmental behavior uh in the early movement um and then the venture capital supporting those businesses like ben and jerry's and patagonia and all the organic food brands and the natural products expo and all the companies trying to do things better and renewable energy and then one of the people that I met was named Woody Tash, and he was a family office, uh, you know, an investment manager and also um, a leading thinker. And he, when I met him, he ran a group called Investors Circle, which venture capital for a sustainable future was what the tagline was then. But then he started writing books about soil. He wrote a book called Slow Money, thinking about the paradigm shift from fast money to slow money, from fast food to slow food. So the slow food movement applied to finance. And if you don't know what slow food is, it's about you go to the market once a week um, in, in Europe or in communities where we can go to farmer's markets. And that's slow because you can, you can you know, get the food locally. That slow food movement is an artisanal movement, but it's also about the biome and the and the, the the context from the food, you know, the communities. So he suggested that slow food, slow money, investing as if food, farms, and fertility mattered is the tagline of his book, fertility of the soil, fertility of the quality of food. And then how do we then look at paradigm shift toward, and that was the, when I started learning about regenerative thinking and regenerative so that paradigm shift from natural to organic to regenerative, you might say the entire collective of the industry of, of organics, um, beneficial, you know, environmental movements and trying to then create business enterprise and then finance those whereas the think tank, you might say, in the various groups like Social Venture Network and American Sustainable Business Council and the various NGOs that are addressing those concerns. But that's that's the the, the paradigm shift, uh, Sophia. That did that answer your question enough to give you a good flavor of um, what we're talking about and the kind of recognizing the mental model and the collective evolving. And then we have each of us because people like Woody and the men, you know, Donella Meadows and um, the men and women that led that that shift in the seventies, eighties, nineties, two thousands were just like us no different they didn't have any more money or skills or capacity than we do so we are now the ones planting the seeds for what's next and your question if i may um julian go ahead uh, there's a second Lord question ask a question gregory are you proposing to develop a set of rules and guidelines that would incur change systematically like breathing in a different way or behaving in a way that others would identify you as a part of their mindset no, I, I don't I don't think that way. I don't think of rules because that's one of the problems we've had in the environmental movement. Think about regulations toward um, trying to eliminate fossil fuels. So that's a regulation that's saying fossil fuels, we want to get rid of them. 
But what about all the countries that don't have those regulations? So is there going to be, are we going to be able to regulate and control this situation? I don't think so. And I don't think it's about, um, I think it's more about this, identifying principles of well-being, coherence, community, longevity, future generations, collective intelligence, complexity, contextual, place-based. Because if we're looking at the, the mindset shift and also the systemic shift of quality of life for all beings and humans, um, the environmental movement but or impact investing, all those things that we're talking about, they land and they happen in places, in communities, whether it's the rainforest community in the wild or in our cities. It all happens on the ground somewhere or in the ocean somewhere or in a river or so then if we then look at grounding these things in the context of identifying the quality of place that's where we get into the bioregional discussion of looking at the quality of what is actually going on here oh we want to make sure future generations are benefited so there's a set of principles but each one has a different dynamic um, approach that's necessary which means that there are no rules that will work across the board or no no social control systems that will work either. So it's not about compliance with a set of rules or being part of a club that says things and operates in a particular way. It's about saying, we all agree for a better future. We all agree that we want to have healthy lives. And that challenge is where we disagree is how do we come to an agreement? How do we come to an alignment around these principles of common ground is the is my, uh, my best attempt in the, uh, off the top of my head, uh, Jorg, uh, to respond to your question, but it also underscores the kinds of things that are necessary for this this whole system shift underway, because it won't work in the old way of top-down control systems or military businesses run like military in a lot of ways, and the hierarchies and the kind of control and rules, but that doesn't give individuals that are in those systems of hierarchy agency to self-discover in their in context of their community what is best in their place time so there's some there's some new principles coming through and collective thinking regenerative if you look at integral theory um teal management there's a fantastic book called uh, reinventing or i think it's reinventing organizations by uh frederick lalu that talks about the possibility of how we organize ourselves and as humans, not only inside of organizations, but also on the collective sphere, can inform a more sophisticated and uh, evolutionary path forward. And Carter Phipps wrote a fantastic book called Evolutionaries uh, that I recommend very highly to look at what role we all should play or could play. We have, I think should, because I have a, a sense that every one of us has a responsibility to be contributing to the evolution of our civilization, um, each of us. You're but saying I, a magic word there, Gregory. Uh, thanks, thanks so much for addressing those questions. The, the magic yeah. word I think is evolution, right? Evolution yeah. is not something we we read about in books, um, and it only is about the the past. It's it's actually a process that we're all in, and it's almost like maybe one of the only real contracts we sign when we're born into a human experience is that we're on an evolutionary journey. And that includes the outer world. Um, the outer world includes those systems that we're talking about today, right? And so I, I would add that I, I do believe rules and guidelines is, is probably like a degree too heavy in that sense that like that is literally how you can perpetuate total control, uh, to be honest. And I think that's kind of the opposite of a thriving society. Um, it might be very effective to get certain things done. And, and this is kind of the way, you know, governments especially, uh, you know, totalitarian governments, but governments at large kind of operate. I think that what comes um, with systems change in a thriving world or in a, you know, kind of upwards spiraling world is, is still though certain kind of standards, you know, standards or, or agreements, I think is maybe really good words because, you know, we, 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 we don't, I think this is like a common misconception in people's mind is that like, so if there is no order, then it must be anarchy. Right? rather than understanding the, the complexity of nature. And I think the best word I'd have for it is, is synergy. It's synergistic. Everything is working together in things and in ways that are almost you know, unimaginably complex and, and brilliantly complex and, and most definitely that, that are not 
visible to the human eye at all at once, right? So the synergistic effects of nature, um, they might at first look like chaos, but they're actually highly complex ways of how everything is in, in an interplay. And I think we as humans want to, we want to onboard back into that way of, um, uh, you know, being in harmony with, with the world at large. I think we as humans are participants in this kind of, in this natural interplay. And so modeling our systems after the way the natural world around us does it, you know, one of my uh, teachers, actually one of my yoga teachers many years ago said, um, the forest, and I think he specifically meant the mycelium, but he said the forest models the banking sister system of the future. And it has always stuck with me that like, yeah, like, yeah, we, we have a banking system that's based on debt, which perpetuates the power of those who are in power, but it's not, it like nature literally models to us what is possible in a way that, you know, we, we now know all trees are, you know, exchanging nutrients and minerals and are at all times in communication. They know their neighbors, they know their, 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 you know, their offspring. They have these, these ways of interacting that are now scientifically proven and it's highly complex, but it seems to be a banking system that, you know, that, that we might want to learn from. Well, there's a book called, I think it was, his name was Victor Huang. I, I wrote, put, posted the, the link of the article that I mentioned this book. It's somewhere in the, like in the middle uh, the book was called The Rainforest to look at how Silicon Valley ecosystem of innovation, he was saying in the book, um, looks like a rainforest, but that's looking at the forest through the lens and the eyes of, and there's no judgment there because he was seeing things systemically, but he was looking at it through the lens, looking at the forest through the lens of Silicon Valley, rather than saying, let's be the forest and explore how how the economy can evolve to be like a forest rather than say look how we are it looks like the forest and i think there's something there's it's 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 that mindset of where is the protagonist in the myth in the story of what we're telling ourselves in humanity are we nature discovering better ways of surviving as a species or are we humans that are separate from nature that have technologies that enables us to compete against others to survive on a planet? That's what's been operating us in our mechanistic scientific reductionism in the last, you know. So what we are going through is a phase shift of a, of a decline of civilization models. But in that has happened so many times from the earlier model before scientific reductionism and materialism to the next one. And we're in that living systems from connection, you know, from separation to connection, from recognition of whole systems that we now have data and technologies to enable us to grok a planetary process. And that planetary process has to be informing our collective evolution and our mindset and the mental model. And that's where this, this is an educational experience for me to be in conversation with you, Julian. And I think this is a continuum of our lifelong journey of education. Sophia, you have a question. And I think um, Jorg also posted another question in there. Uh, yes. So Gregory, I'm curious, since you're a wealth advisor and have a background in finance and business, mm -hmm. and you were just talking about uh, impact investment. Um, I personally also work in the investment space, but much more on the traditional side. Mm -hmm. So in your opinion, what makes an impact investor different from a traditional investor? And uh, maybe you could talk to like, what does that journey look like? What fundamentally shifted in their mindset along the way, if that's even the right way to think about it? That's a deep rabbit hole, uh, Sophia. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think we're already here down in the depths, right? Swimming around and exploring the, um, the 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 foundational thoughts of our civilization, you know. So, um, well, what is an impact investor? I think there's a there's a very specific set of recognitions. One, they're not doing philanthropy, right? So they're not giving the money the way that wants outcome from the gift. So the in the in a philanthropy setting, we all know that giving the money away says we want to create change in this way, but the return is what is observed in the system, the impact. So then the conversation around 
um, philanthropy on one pole and then finance on the other pole of saying, well, let's just go do whatever we do and not be concerned about the outcomes at all and just accumulate as much money in the game as we can. And then we'll go go do some good stuff with the profits we make. That was the debate at the time, right? That when the ideas of ESG, what we used to call SRI in 1991, when I got into the field was, you know, when we looked at environmental investing, it was called pollution control. Like, hold on a second. So this is about saying, don't do industry as bad, do it better and control your pollution, rather than saying, let's look at what the industry is doing to the system to begin with, right? So the idea of evolving that narrative of what the protagonist is in the investment equation became the notion of impact investing. And the term was born out of the community of philanthropy going, what is going on here? We have all this money that we're investing to achieve growth of capital so we can donate it. But what about all the money that what, what's the what's the influence of this investment? There's this missing middle. So the term impact investing was coined by I think it was in the first time I saw it was the book called Impact Investing that Jed Emerson and um, Anthony Bug, uh, I think Anthony Bug Levine was his name, the two authors that wrote that book that says, well, let's look at the impact of our investment. So they, then, then I used to also say there is no impact investment. It's in the, it's an ing, it's a way of investing. It's an approach, it's a mindset because it's applying what we think is more beneficial to the process of evaluating and deploying capital evaluating the investments and then deploying capital but every single investor will have a different set of values that in that they interpret and then that's where we're having challenges in this esg discussion is that there are many different people that have different points of view of what is beneficial and everyone's set of rules is valid for them so then that's part of the debate of what is ethics what are what are values what is valuable and then well, if you look at the broad sense, impact investing is taking your values and applying them in investing. Well, then I've, I've dealt with investors who are um, uncomfortable with family planning, so they don't want to invest in companies that support uh, those things. And they're faith-based investors. And then I've dealt with investors that are very adamant about protecting a woman's right to have a choice. But then they're both applying those investments in the values that they hold and in their own way, they're doing impact investing. So the irony is, well, what is impact and what is the outcome we want? And that's the human conversation that we need to have collectively. So there's another layer deeper that I will not take too much time right now, but impact investing has a limitation because if we're trying to achieve better outcomes in the world, like climate change adaptation or transforming of the food systems, well, then the mechanism of looking at every piece of farmland in this entire continent and then cooperating to make that better for actually better outcomes for the health and well-being of the life of animals and plants and humans, then that means a collective process. But the irony of impact investing means that we invest in companies and projects that are competing against each other in a business marketplace to achieve a collective well-being outcome. So where does the transformation happen from competing to cooperation when investing investing in impact investing requires the rubric of Wall Street competitive thinking to achieve outcomes for the collective? So that's one of the limitations of utilizing market dynamics and capital uh, competition as a means to make transformations in the world. One, the other thing is you can't change the world through the mechanism of finance. Finance is not the way that the world works. Finance is a way of approaching managing capital to then achieve outcomes of accumulating more capital. So then we need to look at impact investing as a meme and evolve that to actually look at economic development and sustainable and regenerative development and then combine those tools together. But then there are abstract global tool systems in the global casino of economic development, capital, and impact well, then we need to ground that in the place that we were talking about earlier in the way that we look at context of living systems in a bioregion. So we need to combine the, the rules 
and tools of impact investing economic development and regenerative economic development and apply it in the living laboratories of each context. Like mm -hmm. Julian was saying, Abu Dhabi is different in as a desert compared to you know Seattle. So we need to look at how do we apply economic development and innovations and in, in capital in place. So those are the that's the 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 the, the the set of ideas that you've evoked by asking your question and generally speaking i think i always go on too much or i go into too much detail but i hope i'll, that was I'll jump in right there then gregory i think you said something really powerful there in in replying to this last question which you know um is finance is not the way the world works right mm -hmm. and probably one of the mantras most repeated by people unknowingly is well money makes the world go round and that's just something we've all learned and inherited. We started the episode with that today, right? That we've inherited certain systems, certain beliefs, certain thoughts we just keep thinking, which is, you know, basically what beliefs are, thoughts we keep thinking. And one of them is that money makes the world go round. And to a degree, the human systems and the, the human interactions and transactions we, we, we partake in on a daily and monthly and annual basis, they are operated by money, but the world doesn't actually work like this. And I think this is the biggest change into a, like a regenerative paradigm or a paradigm of understanding, you know, beyond the problem we've created and a different level of consciousness in which we realize, wait a second, how does this natural environment of planet Earth actually function? Because we are a part of it unless, unless we choose to become robots, right? And it's a whole other conversation maybe for another day. And maybe we should all meet again and talk about AI. But, you know... Oh. Yeah, but but I think fundamentally acknowledging this, some people might might say, well, but if I'm not partaking in the financial uh, power play, then I feel powerless. But I think it actually makes us more powerful to understand that finance isn't the engine that changes everything. It's one of the systems. It's one of the engines, right? It's we have to transcend the money meme, you know, and we need to rethink the model that we've been given that money is the goal. And that's one of the challenges of the business model on the planet. And, you know, Bree, you were asking, you know, um, oh, by the way, uh, you're uh, 42. <laughs> um, uh, you were asking, uh, he asked about the Hitchhiker, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And I think the answer in that was 42. Um, um, Bree, you said, I have a question to add to this. How do we onboard more people onto this collective uh, dedicated to better outcomes for the climate. <clears throat> well, I think, I don't know, uh, is the first question. And I think if you just look at the question, how do we onboard mores, more to be part of this we, right? Well, then there's two assumptions there that we are separate from them and that our ideas are superior. And the question is, if we challenge that assumption, are we actually separate from those around us or we just have different perspectives, right? And then, well, if we have different perspectives, how do we then change perspectives of others to see things when you see a larger context, perhaps a more beneficial one for both parties? Well, that means we have to get down into the way we think again and how we relate, which is the very fundamental problem on the planet. It's not an environmental crisis. It's a relational crisis. Mm -hmm. need to relate that's the answer also, people. right? The answer lies in relationships, the relationships we have with, well, the environment of the natural world and recognizing it as part of us and the, you know, the relationships we have with each other. I think, and, you know, in addition to how you just kind of reframe that question is um, again, to me, you know, buzzwords are, you know, can often be mistaken as well, but I, I do want to mention it again. Like when we think in bioregions rather than in nation states, and when we think in natural systems rather than in human-made financial systems, I think a lot of the, you know, the pathways forward start to light up a, a little, a little easier because it becomes visible that, again, like if you live in the same city or if you live in the same region similar things will naturally over time become important to you because it's part of what you have interest in, right? If you live in the, in the desert, if that is, you know, you know, Abu Dhabi again, or Texas or wherever, or if you live in a rainforest, you'll have different needs and desires based on the seasons you go through. And those are not unsimilar from your neighbor, no matter if the neighbor lives in a bigger or a smaller house, drives a bigger or a smaller car, 
Um, and so showing, you know, like kind of letting, letting the, the needs we have as humans show the way for the relationships we have, I think is very important. And I believe the financial systems or the way that we've, we've kind of inherited systems, they try to replace all of this and create like an artificial grid on it. Right. And this grid or this matrix on top then kind of, um, yeah, changes the way we relate with each other. It's a mental model. When you said grid like that, I was thinking about how cities are organized. And then you think about the sophistication of a termite mound. And then look at the sophistication of the organism and collective intelligence of ants and termites, right? And there's a lot of brilliance there. And there's actually brilliance in those natural way, those, those, those organisms and community our brethren that we can learn from because if you look at the banking system it's sometimes in some ways you can observe banking system as less sophisticated than a school of fish or less sophisticated than a termite mound because our mental models became so regressed that we lost the very innate intelligence embedded in the way life works and that that's um, particularly where um, Janine Benyus, uh, who one of you know, who is a, was a, a friend of my friend Hazel, my mentor and friend Hazel Henderson, they came together and looked at biomimicry and ethical markets and ethical using ethics and life principles and the golden rule, and then they came up with a framework called ethical biomimicry finance. As, a, as combining these, these, these guidelines of being, of the golden rule of treat on others, but then looking at biomimicry and learning from nature. And then they came up a whole set of principles that is on the Ethical Markets website. I can find the link uh, if you'd like. But the very idea of utilizing uh, a, a phase transition from the scientific materialism and reductionism that's implicit in the economic mindset behind the capital market system we have today, and then looking at challenging that and evolving it to looking at a more holistic and systemic uh, mental model underneath the psychology, underneath the economic paradigm, underneath the recognition of, of science-based systems of the entire earth system. And then from there design, what do we do with our money to enhance that? evolutionary path for humanity to move in that direction, I believe are the type of steps we could take together. And then by looking at that, then identifying what is the future when you, I think there was a book, I can't remember the book, but the future's here, but not widely distributed. That was such a brilliant thought. Um, and Kevin Kelly was doing a lot of that kind of thinking in his design school in Stanford of like, what do we do to bring the future here better? And well, then then we all know there are projects and companies and investments that we can identify in TTI and our communities that represent this more regenerative model and then put them into a portfolio and then exclusively invest in those items, whether they're debt, equity, loan or grants, and then support them. And that then at least anchors that brick in the model of the new civilization that we can create. And that's what's been guiding my work in bioregional thinking here in California as a mental model, as a laboratory in the work I've done. And the article that I posted, Charting a New Course for Impact Investing, was based on what you just heard and learning from the women and men that I've, I studied with, then then put that model. And those men and women over the last 15 years articulated this more systemic approach to capital and business. So I wrote that article to do to attempt not to add my voice, but to synthesize their thinking into something that we can do and apply it in real time. So there's a what you were saying, Julian. I'll I'll, I'll end with this: is um, to look at a, a bioregional experiment on the West Coast and to invite each of us in TTI and our friends and our global community around the world to come and then do what we can to build a regenerative laboratory here and a regenerative finance model, just like I'm talking about, and then make that a project is what I began working on just before the pandemic with the California Capital Markets Task Force. Hmm. 
And then when I met Alessa, I thought, oh, wow, wouldn't it be cool if we can bring all of us in TTI to play together in this playground and then set one up where you are, Julian, and in the Midwest and Texas and set one up where you are, Brie, and whenever you're in Singapore or, you know, Europe, wherever we are in the Scandinavian or, you know, wherever we are, right. we all co-create these mental uh, and actual living laboratories together. But then I thought, well, I'll do my part by being the evolutionary in my place. So anyway, I'll stop there. And once again, I think that's where we could actually embody some of this stuff. Exactly. And that's, you know, that's the call to action here. I, I'd love to, we've been on for about an hour, um, you know, find find a place where we, we wrap this first, you know, like we should have called it the philosophy hour. Um, but <laughs> I, I really, I really love, I really love diving in in this way and also, you know, asking the questions. Um, kind of coming together to also realize we're not alone in observing the world in this way, right? Um, I'm going to read a Buckminster Fuller quote because I mean, he's probably been the most underrated uh, genius of the last century. Um, and that is, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete, right? And so um, I think this, this you know, philosophy style um, kind of deep dive in the systems change is also it's not because we're opposing the existing reality, right? Activism, the way it has often um, been been displayed over the last decades, that's like sometimes radical, sometimes brutal, and, and definitely always against. Maybe it has its place, but I think it's also evolving in an evolutionary sense because it isn't changing and moving as much as it was hoping to change. And so really what, what we need to do is we need to come together to build new models. And None of us really has the answer and we'll make mistakes and some of it will not work out and then we'll have to polish and clean up again. But I do believe that only ever change came only ever through small groups of people that came together to make that change real. And it can only ever happen in a place. This is something else that's maybe, um, you know, in the age of globalization and the age of, you know, Zoom calls and podcasts and, uh, you know, all of these things that we've become really accustomed to in just the last five to 10 years. Um, it's still very important to come back to your physical feet and feel the ground and realize like, where am I rooted? Where, who are the people around me? Even if, you know, just like myself, you travel a lot. Um, things happen on the real planet earth. They don't just happen in the metaverse or in a zoom room, right? This is where we can ideate. This is where we can meet. This is where we can philosophize. This is where we can uh, throw spaghetti on the wall and see what sticks, but real change happens with real people on the ground. And so, um, yeah, you know, groups of people, in whatever cohort it is, and definitely a TTI that brought all of us together here today, top tier impact and investment specifically, is is one of those groups. Um, that's how real change happens. And so my, you know, the whole podcast project is basically a call to participation, highlighting and showcasing people that, you know, create positive change in the world. Um, I'm going to close it from my side, and I'm, I'm going to just open the mic for anyone to add something that they want to add. Um, that, you know, it is about participation. It's not about consuming a reality like we do on Netflix or in virtual reality goggles or whatever else we, we can or, you know, going to the restaurant. It's about participating and co-creating it. And the the most, there's two trains of thought here that, that keep coming back to me since, you know, a decade and longer. One of them is the seven generational perspective. Like, who are we as a human family beyond the the one lifetime that we're in as the experience of the I, right? The, the ego or the personality. And, and so like, yeah, it's, it is very important to understand that there, there have been people before us and there will be people after us. And, and we're, we're kind of all in one team if we get it or not. Right. And, you know, kind of congruent to that, the, the, the second part, um, you know, if it isn't escaping me, the second part I wanted to share is participation. I always started with participation, right? So yeah, it was about asking questions. I'm, yes. I'm kind yeah. of, I'm yeah, kind of circling around the same things, but that's that's how I wanted to close this this beautiful episode. And Greg, I'm going to pass it to you again, and then um, well, we'll I'm just thinking about and Bree and Sophia. So if you wanted to add in anything, feel free. Well, I'm 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 thinking um, about you know I'm the ambassador for LA, and there's like 60 of us around the world, and and you know gathering in physical places. So there's something that's so potent about us and in TTI, and I love uh, the just knowing that. Uh, we have people gathering together face to face, and I think that's one of the most beautiful parts of our 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 work. And then bringing new people into this discussion. So, 
it, I imagine that if we could do this kind of dialogue and reflection on the questions before us together at each of the dinners in this kind of open-minded and open-hearted way, I think that's also a pathway. Um, so all of you are invited to dinner in LA <laughs> and everybody who's in TTI. And I think we should start looking at maybe doing some physical more gatherings. And I think that's already been happening with the, you know, the Davos meetups and what have you. But I, I think each of us could start hosting many conferences. Um, and also this living laboratory project, I'm actually meeting with public officials and others in this region here in LA, we're the 20th largest economy in the in the world. Uh, so I'm, I'm continuing to be inspired that this is a potential uh, playground for us. And it's beautiful. Um, place to be. There's beach and good food and good people. So come on over. Um, but thank you, Julian. Thank you. And I love the way that we had this as a collective conversation, even though it was just you and I, Julian, talking, except for when you came in, Sophia, and thank you for jumping in. I feel that this is a much more robust format, right? So, you know, everybody, that we can actually have questions and we talk about the questions and we have somewhat of a dialogue. And I think this is something that Julian, I want to do again. Let's do it again and then again. Let's do it every month or so. And let's do it again. Here's here's the question that escaped me earlier. And this is a fundamental, a very simple question. What is a healthy planet in the first place? Like what what is the healthy planet we all want to co-create? Right. And so along that line, let's keep exploring. I think um, and this is a first, a first uh philosophy hour. I'm gonna call it that in my mind now. And um we'll we'll re we'll re um regroup for this. Thank you, everyone, uh, for joining. Yeah, what a pleasure, really. Thank you, Julian.